So today we have the pleasure of hearing from Melinda Jean-Louis again. She spoke a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I was thinking about introducing you. I realized you have volunteered on pretty much every team. I think you've taken just about every class. (laughs) Yeah. You know the river inside and out probably more than most anyone, right? I mean, not more than Charles. Yeah. (laughs) And you're still still here. I am. So let's give a big round of applause to Melinda. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks, Sarah, for reminding me how much of an overachiever I am. (laughs) So I listened to a podcast, an episode of of the podcast, Super Soul Conversations. I don't know if y'all have heard of it. Yeah. Oprah Winfrey, very famous woman. (laughs) She was interviewing this incredible 91-year-old Holocaust survivor turned psychologist later in life named Dr. Edith Eva Eager on her new book called The Choice, Embrace the Possible. I haven't read it. The podcast made it sound really good. So, <laughs> But a question that Dr. Eager says that she asked her clients in her trauma work with them is, when did your childhood end? She says this question helps set the stage for the work and challenges people to acknowledge how freely or not so freely they're living their lives in the present. So when I think about how I would answer that question, a few instances come to mind. If you were here about a month ago, I did share how my first instance that would come to mind would be the first man who molested me when I was seven years old. But I would also be reminded of other things, like my first job when I was six years old, when I was working the cash register at my dad's grocery store. I think when I was looking back at it, I probably thought it was really fun that I was six and I was at the cash register. (laughs) But looking back, I feel like that probably was the first time that I was kind of introduced to like adult type of things, like worrying about being responsible, being accurate, not wanting the people to steal money from me, um, taking on more adult attributes. Or when I was eight years old and my paternal grandfather died, and that was my first time navigating death seeing my first dead body in a coffin, and how that affected the people and the adults in my life. So I share these examples because I think Dr. Eager would agree that while all of us have not been in concentration camps or survivors of abuse, we all had a moment when our childhoods ended. And in that moment, we were introduced to adult burdens, responsibilities, trials, and losing some of that carefree, whimsical, kind of playful nature that we all think of when we think about childhood. And these experiences could have had the potential to either have us be more free later on in life, or we could become slaves to whatever we understood about the world at the time. So before I pray for us, I'd like you all to think about how you'd answered the question. When did your childhood end? God, I just thank you that you are here. I thank you that you care. And I thank you that you are always doing good to us. And I just pray that during these next few moments together that we'll be reminded of how you're doing that for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 
in August, about a month ago, I shared a piece of my life story that I had never really spoken about in public before or pretty much to anyone for about 13 years. So if you missed the talk, a brief, brief little thing about it was that I shared about how mainstream American and Haitian Christian cultures were the backdrop of a toxic environment in my life where I ended up having repeated experiences of sexual abuse by various people and not being believed by some of those people in my families and then my story of beginning to overcome that. Since all of it was really wrapped up with my faith and my culture, it has been and it's still kind of hard to piece everything out. Essentially, my childhood was littered with experiences that one would call endings to my childhood as it relates to the people and the communities of faith that I was in. And a skeptic's interpretation or a reading of my life would lead someone to ask the question, Melinda, why did you keep on pursuing God in these places all this time? <laughs> so when I first thought about that, I have to admit, I felt a little stupid. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe I was crazy. Maybe I'm just foolish or just like a sucker for punishment. I don't know. <laughs> because another person would have chosen to go another way. In fact, in my life, I've met many people who have. So first, I want to say this. Like, I believe we all have our different paths in life. So some of us have to go this way and that. So to me, that's all good because I actually understand completely when people feel hurt or traumatized at church, I can 100% understand why you would decide to leave and choose to pursue your faith another place. But I, however, never made that choice. And I'm here today to let you all know why I think I stayed and how I've managed to continue to pursue my faith in communities, even when professed Christian teachers, family, or even a pastor betrayed me in such an intimate way. And maybe that could help you navigate some of the disappointments in your life from a different perspective. Okay? Okay. So I started today talking about Dr. Eager's question, because I think that for me, my pursuit to connect with the little girl in me is both why and how I stayed. So first, let me say why. I fell in love with Jesus as a child. I was seven years old, which coincidentally happens to be the same year that my childhood ended. While that experience threatened to shake my very young, naive belief in love, it did not. The first thing I remember loving about Jesus was very simple. It's because Jesus loved me. <laughs> I know, I was young. But, but to me, it's like, I think because I was young, there was not much anybody could tell me to keep me from believing it once I had decided that it was true. You guys know kids are stubborn. <laughs> so while my understanding of Jesus' love has grown since then, but my unwillingness to not allow anybody to refute my faith in that love that was infinite, unconditional, with no barriers to access, really saved my life and continues to save my life. So that little girl in me has remained increasingly attracted to that idea, and that truth has continued to transform my thinking, my heart, and my love for the other ones around me. And while churches were not always very good at demonstrating that love to me, they sure preached about it all the time. <laughs> so uh, the more I heard about it, the more curious I became. And then I started to gather my evidence. And somehow that shielded my faith. 
for me, God's love is supernatural. It's mesmerizing. Out of this world, nothing compares to it. And as hard as it may be to believe, knowing love in its more distorted, twisted, abusive forms increased my appreciation for that kind of love even more. I know. For some of us practical people in the room, love may not seem like enough of a reason to continue to have faith in God and pursue that faith in community, especially when church communities disappoint us or people who you surmise to be one way let you down and turn out to be a whole other type of way. The argument I often hear is, isn't the church supposed to be the picture of love and if they can't get it right, what hope is there for the rest of us? Oh, how I would love if that were true. Unfortunately, it's not. As much as we all pursue love, we all fall short. And that truth has been oddly very comforting for me because it's made me more convinced of the magic of God's love. But I can't profess to believe in love if I don't at least try to love other people. So I stayed. Pursuing the dream of perfect love in imperfect communities. Finding encouragement in those little magical moments that seem to come just so that you have enough strength to keep on believing. And for me, at least in my opinion, believing in love like that sometimes feels like believing in fairy tales or like magic or something. <laughs> and I guess only kids tend to believe in fairy tales, right? Well, maybe not, maybe not. But for some reason, when we encounter the real world like adults, it tends to rattle us. We start to accumulate our long list of disappointing reasons why that type of love is impossible. But I think there's something, I haven't got my finger on it just yet, but there's something about being like a child, or for me, the little girl in me, or you, the child in you, that I think is worth investing in. Because not only will it maybe change your life, but it will definitely help you keep on believing in yourself, in God, and in communities. And since we're in this sermon series called Tell Me How, Please, I'm going to spend the rest of my time trying to tell y'all how connecting with my little girl and me helped me keep on having faith and also pursue that in community. So here we go. All right. So the New Testament portion of the scriptures has four accounts of Jesus's life. And in three out of four of those accounts, also known as the Gospels, there's this description of this moment that happened while Jesus was teaching that I'd like us to focus on for the rest of our time together. So it's in Mark 10, 13 through 16. I'll read it for you guys. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with the disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. So this encounter, in my opinion, has a lot to teach us, and I don't think I'll even scratch the surface today, but I'll try my best. So on one level, sure, Jesus could simply be talking about real, warm-blooded children. 
I mean, there were actual kids there, so that's possible. And if that's all Jesus is talking about, that in and of itself to me is fabulous. Children are welcome here. The least of us, the most vulnerable. Heaven is not too big for them. But if you're an adult, this may seem hmm, threatening or even confusing. Kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. The emphasis on these two metaphors, in my opinion, leads me to think that there's something about our ability to access the kingdom of God that is dependent or somehow related to having childlike attributes. And for argument's sake, let's just say kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven could be a place where you go after you die, or it could be a place that you may be able to access here on earth where freedom, joy, and love exist at their best. So I think either way, it's good, right? Okay. So I'm especially drawn to Jesus's command of not holding the children back, which the disciples didn't fully understand. And Jesus says to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, exclamation point. I don't know why the author decided to do that. It may just be an American thing. I don't know. Um, so he says, don't put any obstacles in their way from letting them come to Jesus. For us adults here, this could be an invitation, even though Jesus' tone is a little authoritative here. I mean, you guys could admit that. But I think he's inviting us to allow our childlike selves to come forward and not feel the need to push that part of ourselves down, which I think we often think is the work of adulthood, quote unquote. Or it could be an opportunity to allow the parts of our childhood that died or ended to come to the surface so that Jesus can then touch and bless them. There are a handful of moments in Jesus' life that the Bible records that he was angry. And for some reason, that stuck out to me this time. Hmm, creating an obstacle for children or from being like a child somehow gets a rise out of Jesus. Makes me think, this is high stakes. I mean, this is no joke. I mean, he does say anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. So this is important, right? Yeah. So in my experience, when someone is angry, there's usually some hurt underneath it, right? And for me, this was kind of mind-blowing because for some reason, it's always hard for me to see Jesus as a human being, right? But let's imagine, what if Jesus is hurt here? Something about holding ourselves back, the childlike parts of us, hurts our relationship with Jesus. Did you guys ever consider that? I didn't until now. But when we're unwilling to access or affirm that childlike part of us that may have been lost or maybe is not seen as that all put together adult, we may be un unintentionally diminishing some of what Jesus offers us, the love that the cross represents. And while Jesus hadn't died yet here, I think when we deny him these most vulnerable, unseen, really tender aspects of ourselves, we may be putting up a wall between us, hurting him and keeping us from trusting him and his love for us. And the work of faith for me has looked like acknowledging those moments when my childhood was stalled, 
connecting with that little child inside me and constantly turning her to Jesus and allowing Jesus to touch me even in the most disappointing moments. And so I have some practical suggestions for how I was able to do that if you're interested in knowing more about how I did that. So my first one is don't give up on your inner child. If you think back on your childhood, I mean, maybe you don't think back that much, but I'm a therapist, so I'm always thinking about childhood. Um, but children are brand new. Don't you guys love that yummy, like, powdery, fresh infant smell? I mean, for me, that's like a drug, but anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> there's this sense of awe and wonder about everything. They're open to learning because they really don't know. Like, I used to teach in a preschool, and I remember we had a water table, and I remember we just dropped red and blue in there. It was like a party in the classroom. Purple was created. People were running. I was like, really? Over purple? <laughs> but they're curious, and their capacity to move forward is not predetermined by some well-thought-out explanation for why these things happened. They learn to walk, they fall, somehow they get back up again and try again. There's this carefree attitude that I think all of us really want, but as adults it would feel irresponsible. The older we get, the more disappointments come, the harder it is to release those worries and reasons why it's not worth it and try again. Then bitterness and resentment start to form that lovely, unattractive crust all around us. But if we don't give up on our inner child, we can recognize our limits of our own understanding, develop some flexibility, and be a little humble enough to be okay with not everything being fully like, reasoned out according to our own understanding. It's incredibly tempting, though, to give up on that carefree, full of awe and wonder mentality, especially when bad things happen. Because I think going into adult mode is the more familiar mode to go into. I mean, we want to think about things, create explanations for everything, because I believe that the adult in us really wants to control our life and control our situations, rationalizing all the pains and hurts away. But for me, not giving up on my inner child has helped me constantly renew my faith and love, especially in those disappointments. And let me give you all an example of what that looks like for me. So. For me, it means letting myself cry sometimes when my adult self starts to judge why I'm crying. Oh, Melinda, it's not that big of a deal. All they didn't do is they didn't call you back like they said they were going to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and when I let myself be a little kid for a moment and cast all of that rejection back to Jesus, Holy Spirit can touch me in a way that only she can, and I'm given a chance to experience more life than I could on my own. Hold our expectations of others very lightly. This one's a hard one, because for me, this is where I've been the most hurt. An aspect of my childhood relationship that I really liked was this sense of lightness that they all had. We would be really upset about something, and then like two minutes later, all was forgiven, finished, we're best friends again. I don't know how that happened. Or we would just approach somebody on the playground, not really know if they're the best person we should be playing with, but 
Suddenly we're friends, we hang out for the next two hours. Oh, mommy, that's my best friend. I know we're adults and naturally relationships become more complex as we age. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But this lightness that I'm referring to looks like releasing the relationship of any expectation that this person has to be anything other than who they are. Let me say that again. This person has to be anything other than who they are. For me, there's something about that that's really freeing not placing any of my own demands on who someone has to be in a relationship with me. I think that's where we enter the kingdom of heaven, like Jesus said. There's no judgment, no conditions, no shoulds. Just me, just you. Of course, we get hurt, we get disappointed, heartbroken, but I think there's a problem when we live out of a sense of entitlement or maybe this belief that people need to be exactly as we demand they should be that gets in the way of love and acceptance. Consequently, our inability to connect with that little kid inside of us then has us acting like children as adults, becoming increasingly disenchanted with the world when the world does not behave or take care of us in the ways that we think it should be. So it's kind of like what I like to call an adult temper tantrum. And I'll, and I'll tell you how my tantrum looks like so you guys can think about yours, okay? So mine looks like this. I start to feel small, powerless, blaming the other person for everything. I put people way up high on pedestals, and demand that they should be so much bigger and better than me or anyone else because of whatever reason I came up with that day. And I can tell you, that doesn't lead to joy or freedom. No, it leads to isolation, resentment, bitterness, depression, basically hell on earth. The interesting thing about children that I've seen is that when they're at their best when they're playing, they create these imaginative worlds where they are the most powerful center of the universe. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. They become like Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman, superheroes. The doctor, the pilot, mom, dad, they're not trying to be small, they're trying to be big, okay? And so it's twisted to, to me that when we, as adults, are unable to connect with that power and magic in our relationships when we get disappointed, we start to disconnect and for me, it makes us not all that we could be. So let's take it easy. We are all human beings. Even Jesus was mistake prone, clumsy. The Bible calls us sinners. And I'm sure this isn't news to you, but people in church are human people too, even the pastors. So let's not forget our agency, our power, or, and catch ourselves, or if we can't, then ask for God's help when we start to play the victim in our disappointing relationships. Let's be superheroes. <laughs> because I actually think Jesus believes that we are. He said we would do greater things than he did. Let's not hold people up so high that they become God in our lives. And I understand it's very tempting to do that. But I don't think that helps anybody. 
And honestly, it's way too much pressure on any relationship. I just want to be clear. I am not excusing criminal behavior, okay? We're all going to be held responsible for what we do. But for me, holding my expectations of people lightly helped not completely shake my faith in God when people in faith communities did really messed up things. And it also helped me from not missing out on all the wonderful people that actually exist in those places and who are just trying their best to pursue love as much as I am. That way, I've been freer to enjoy the gifts that God gives me in those relationships, keeping in mind that the person in front of me will never, ever, ever be able to replace God's love for me, and vice versa. My last suggestion is remain curious and open to who God can be in your life. For me, this basically boils down to realizing that I don't know everything there is to know about God. This attitude of, I don't know, I think represents being like a child. The willingness to recognize that we don't know is not something that comes really easily for adults, especially when we're disappointed. So when we're disappointed, I think the default is to hunker down, get into battle mode, go to your tried and true coping mechanisms, whatever those are but one of them tends to be a very predictable picture of who God is. Where we put God in a box as to how God behaves and will behave according to our understanding or whatever past understandings we've had of God. But again, I understand unpredictability is stressful, especially when you're already going through a stressful moment in your life. So I understand why we would turn to the God we've always known and how God has always been. We need God to be like a vending machine. I did these things, I put these quarters in, and therefore you should behave these ways. But when we experience disappointments that threaten to shake our faith in that God, then that's when that version of God no longer works. And so we throw in the towel, turn away, leave, get frustrated. But approaching God with that childlike curiosity and openness and willingness to learn something new may not seem comfortable. I know it will not be comfortable if you try. But for me, at least, that's what saved my faith. Letting go of my expectations of how God behaved and what God did according to the past, how God did things in the past, was the only way I could move forward when I was let down by people of faith. This has meant recognizing the limitations of those experiences and letting go of my adult desire to predict or to control who God is, which will always be bigger and greater and more expansive than I'll ever fully understand. And lastly, have fun with God. <laughs> um, have a pillow fight if you want to. Go for a walk, run, dance. Just let go. Surrender. Feeling free for me to be playful and imaginative in my relationship with God has been what sustained me all this time, especially when I've been disappointed because approaching God that way led me to have my own personal, quirky, weird connection with God. And that's also given me a place where I've continued to learn about who God is. Activities that we talk about at the river like journaling or conversational prayer or you could just start by like testing out your ability to hear from God in the silence 
and then see what happens. And then if you're wrong, then you learn that you're wrong. And then if you're right, you but oh, okay, let's keep on going. Or, you know, regroup. It's not that big of a deal. Remaining open and curious to God has encouraged me to trust, listen, and believe that God's heart for me is always good. Jesus' love for me is always incredibly unconditional. Because like Jesus did for those kids that day when he was teaching and he stopped everything and made room for them, Jesus does that for me all the time. And I think that he can do that for you too. So let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you that you love us so much that we're all your favorite. And I just pray, God, that you would continue to show us all how incredibly enamored you are with us and somehow, God, that that's going to empower us to keep on pressing on. In Jesus' name, amen.